So this morning, we're starting a new series called Next Level Neighboring. God takes his call to love us very seriously. And he asks those that he loves to take our call to love others seriously too. God loves us. We love others. You hear Jesus talk about it all the time when he says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not just that we're supposed to be nice neighbors, the kind of people who wave at the people who live next door to us when we're both out working on our lawn, or that we're supposed to be good neighbors, gathering up each other's mail, watching after each other's kids or pets, but we are to be neighbors who take love to a whole nother level. We're to be the kind of neighbors who demonstrate deep love, great sacrifice, constant service, Not just to the people we already know, but in particular to the people we don't yet know and who God, through you, wants to get to know. In this series, we're going to touch on a handful of things that I believe are essential to us as individuals and also as a church living out this call to be next-level neighbors. We're going to talk about things like reconciliation. We're to be people who value relationships being restored around us. Uh, We're going to talk about evangelism, reaching out to people around us who we know don't share our faith and demonstrating our faith to them, even inviting them to share in our faith with us. Um, Also, uh, we'll be talking about diversity, the fact that we are called to love people who don't look like us. That's next-level neighboring. And then lastly, what we'll talk about starting today is hospitality, how we are to be people who open our homes to those who are strangers and we treat them like family so that they might become our friends. That's biblical hospitality. It's not just throwing dinner parties for people you already know. That's great. If you have the gift to be Martha Stewart or Joanna Gaines, go for it. (laughs) But biblical hospitality is something different. It's, It's really three things. It is opening up the places in which you live on a day-to-day basis and inviting strangers in, people who you would say you don't know really well, if at all. And then when you invite them in, you treat them like their family. You're generous to them. You're understanding of them. You're kind to them. You talk about things that matter to you with them. And then in treating these strangers like family, you bring into it an expectation that with God in the mix, this stranger that you treat like family might just become your friend a friend with whom you share some deep and important and spiritual things. That's what biblical hospitality is all about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You see, you see examples of it throughout the scriptures, but there is one story uh, that you might not be familiar with, which is a, uh, a great example of what biblical hospitality both is and what it can accomplish in the lives of God's people. It's a story buried deep in the Old Testament featuring a a guy with a strange name. We first meet him when he's five, and then he comes back onto the scene when he's about 25, 26 years old. It's a story of a young man named Mephibosheth. It's a mouthful, right? Uh, Go ahead and repeat after me. Mephibosheth. God bless you. It's kind of what it sounds like, right? Um, I want to tell you his story. Growing up with a first name like Mephibosheth... (laughs) was probably a lot like growing up with the last name Popovitz. Whenever you introduced yourself, people said Gesundheit, right? 
We, we first meet Mephibosheth in the book of 2 Samuel, deep in the Old Testament, and he's five years old. He's about to enter kindergarten, so to speak. And his father is a man named Jonathan. His grandfather is King Saul, king of God's people, the Israelites. And his grandfather, King Saul, is feuding with a man named David, who would later become King David. But at this time, he wasn't King David just yet. He was just David, whom God had chosen to one day be the king. And in one particular moment, when Mephibosheth is about five, King Saul, his grandpa, and David are feuding. And the Israelites' enemy, the Philistines, they see this as an opportune moment to attack them. And so the Philistines attack the Israelites, and in one fell swoop, they kill both Jonathan and Saul. They kill Mephibosheth's dad and his grandfather, the king, which leaves the throne empty for David to take over. Here's how it's described in 2 Samuel, uh, starting in verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Now we're going to learn how he became crippled. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel that they died, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name is Mephibosheth. So our boy was five years old when his world falls apart. His dad dies, and his grandfather dies, and the kingdom is up for grabs. And his nanny, who's taking care of him, hears that Mephibosheth's dad and grandfather have died and that the kingdom is up for grabs, and she knows that he is the remaining heir to the throne. So she has to protect him from the Philistines. And so she she grabs him, and she goes running, and she's kind of maybe dragging him behind her, and some kind of accident happens where they trip and they fall, and Mephibosheth breaks his legs, and he becomes crippled for life from that incident. So in one day, this young boy lost his dad, lost his grandfather, lost his future and his inheritance, lost the ability to walk, and as if that wasn't enough, he's now an enemy of the state. Because David becomes king, and there's a tradition that when a new king takes over, that the descendants of the previous king, all the males who could take the throne, what do you think happens to them? They get killed. So at five years old, he's fatherless, futureless, handicapped, and an outlaw. All before kindergarten. Who is, like, the saddest, most pitiable person you've ever met? Don't point to anybody in the room. Someone who, when you think of them, you just say, man, they have just had it so tough. And like a lump forms in your throat or a tear forms in your eye, just when you think about them. You ever met someone like that? That was Mephibosheth. He'd lost it all. Now, something you need to know about studying the Old Testament is something that that theology nerds like me call typology. Typology is this understanding that when you study the Old Testament, that many of the characters, they are types or allusions to future people who will emerge in God's story. So uh, it, it behooves us as we study the story of Mephibosheth to ask ourselves, could he be a type of someone else who emerges future in the story? And the answer is yes. And the answer might surprise you about who Mephibosheth is an allusion to in God's family. 
And the answer is actually that you and Mephibosheth have a lot in common. Because Mephibosheth is a type. He's a, he's a glimmer, a glimpse, an allusion to you and to me. Spiritually speaking, that is. You and I are, are, are born into this world disconnected from the divine. We need a relationship with him, but, but we don't have a relationship with him. Uh, we are disconnected from God. We don't like to see ourselves this way, but we have been broken and hurt by sin to such a degree that we can, we can barely walk, let alone prove ourselves that the Father deserves to make a place for us, that we deserve a place at the Father's family. We have been rocked and ruined by the reality of sin. We are fatherless, spiritually speaking. Futureless, spiritually speaking. Handicapped, spiritually speaking. And pitiable and hopeless, spiritually speaking. Now, we don't like to admit this about ourselves, but it's true. And every once in a while, something happens in your life where you are reminded of just how sinful and broken and messed up you are. So, for example, for me, this happens all the time, but I'll give you just one example. Um, it's been a long time since, uh, since I've been pulled over by the police. But let's just say I know how the process goes. And you've been there. You get pulled over. The lights are in your rearview mirror. Your wife looks at you and says, what did you do? And they pull you over, and typically, typically, the police officer makes you wait and just kind of sweat it out. They wait while they, they read that computer screen that tells you every horrible thing you've ever, tells them every horrible thing you've ever done. And, and in, in that moment, even though I know I'm a pretty good person, even though I don't, I don't think I've broken any major laws, in that moment while you're sitting there waiting for the cop to emerge, you start to do this inventory of your life, like, what have I done? Did we file our taxes this year? Am I an out? Is there a warrant out for my arrest that I'm not aware of? I don't know. You do this inventory and suddenly you realize, I, I'm not a perfect person. I'm a sinful, broken person. Maybe I broke some law I didn't know of. Maybe he knows of some law I willfully broke. And you go through these scenarios. Should I bribe the cop? No, that would be horrible. I'd never do that. What do I do to get out of this moment? It doesn't help that your wife looks at you and she asks, what did you do? Or that your son in the back seat says, Dad, are you going to jail? To which you have to say, probably not. There are moments where you are reminded of the fact that you're a sinful person. Where the bright light is shining on you and you, you break the facade of how capable and good and rule-following you are. And, and you are made once again aware of the fact that you are fallible and broken. And that you are, you are a sinful, messed up human being. For me, it happens if I get pulled over. <laughs> What about for you? You and I, we are Mephibosheth, so to speak. We are spiritually broken, spiritually fatherless, spiritually without an inheritance and without any hope. We are completely and utterly lost. We are he in this story. Now, continuing the story, fast forward 20 years. And Mephibosheth, who we first meet at five, is about 25 or 26 years old. And David is still on the throne of Israel. He's been king for just over 20 years at this particular point. And at this point, he remembers that he had made a promise to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, who happened to be David's childhood friend. 
He made a promise to Jonathan that he would, he would not destroy any of Jonathan's descendants. And so he starts to wonder what happened to Jonathan's descendants. And so he calls for the descendants to come to him if there's any remaining alive. And he promises that he would not only not destroy them, but he promises actually to go further, he promises to bless them. Here's what happens. 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 9 now. David said, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, when he's called out of hiding and he's found by the king's people, and he's called out of hiding to come and appear before the king, Mephibosheth made one assumption, I'm sure that he was going to die. After all, that's what you did to the heirs of the previous throne. You killed them. And so as one last-ditch effort in his mind to save his life, when he's called before the king, it says that he, he fell face down. He laid prostrate on the floor, face down, to pay homage for the king to show some respect in an effort to maybe have his life spared. So, so, so picture this. It's, it's, it's a pitiable picture. There's this, this grown man who's dragged before the king, and as he enters the room, he's He's on crutches of some sort to help him walk, and he kind of walks slowly in front of the king, and then he, he puts the crutches to the side, and he slowly lowers himself to the floor, and he lays prostrate and begs for his life. And here's what David says. David says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat of my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Verse 11 now. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth himself had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Let me say that again. He ate always at the king's table, from outlaw to invitee. Now he was lame in both his feet. So King David says, all the land and all the servants that belong to your grandfather, the former king, I'm going to give them to you, because that was your inheritance, had I not taken over the throne. Not only that, I'm going to give you a family. Your family's gone. I'm going to be your family now. And you're going to sit at my table as if you were a son of the king. And you get to enjoy all the spoils. And so just like that, almost everything is fixed and healed in Mephibosheth's life. I mean, his body is still desperately broken, but now he has a family. He has an inheritance. He has a bright future. And he gets to sit and dine at the king's table as if he's one of the king's sons. And it's all because of the mercy and grace of David, the king. David opens up the table where the conversations are had. You've seen Game of Thrones where the big plans are made. And he treats him as one of his own. What's the equivalent space in your home? The place where the important conversations are had, where life is lived with the people that matter the most. Is it your dinner table? 
Maybe it's, maybe it's the couch while you sit together and you eat something that you're holding in your hands and you watch your favorite TV shows. Or, or maybe it's the neighborhood as you take walks together in the evening and talk about your day. Well, where is the place in your life where if there's someone there with you enjoying that table or watching that show or on that walk, they're probably family to you because they're close to you. Where is that spot or that place in your home? That's the spot that David opened to Mephibosheth. Now, if Mephibosheth is a type, a glimmer, a glimpse of you and I in our spiritual state, then, then David is a glimpse and a glimmer of who? Of Christ. Yeah. What has Christ done for us? You know, David was the king of Israel. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That means saving king of all God's people of the entire world. And you and I, we are born into this world belonging to the old empire, following the old king, with no rights, with no inheritance. And what does Jesus do through his death and his life, his resurrection? He then makes a way for all of the descendants of the old kingdom to be welcomed into his family. And what does he do? He gives us a place at his table. And he says, I'm going to treat you as daughters. I'm going to treat you as sons. And everything that you deserve by being part of a kingdom like this, I'm going to give all those things to you. You now have an inheritance and a family and a future. That's what Jesus does for us. Now, what Jesus longs for us to do is to not only see a story like this as a picture of our salvation. We are Mephibosheth, and Jesus is David, and David welcomes us into his family, spiritually speaking. He longs for us to also see this as a picture of sanctification, for how we are to live now that we are members of the king's family, now that we have a place at the table. What Jesus wants for us, and you see this throughout the New Testament, what Jesus wants for us is once we realize that we have a spot at the king's table, he wants us to change roles at the table. To go from seeing ourselves as Mephibosheth, the outlaw let in, to see ourselves as a member of the royal family, to see ourselves in David's spot, bringing other people to the table. He wants us to open up our own lives like he has opened up his table to us. To open up our own lives as he has opened up his table to us. We are broken beggars with a spot at the king's table. But he calls us to see ourselves as even more, as members of the king's family who can offer our table and his table to others. And that's where biblical hospitality comes in. God wants you to open up your life to other people the way he's opened up his life to you. And most people never do that. They stay content with the relationships that they already have, the the friends that they already know, and they never open up their life to someone who's a true outsider at all. They never open that table, that couch, that long walk with family to anyone other than the closest of friends and family. But what God wants you to do is what he did for you. He welcomed an outsider and a stranger, treated them like family so that they might become friends. And what does that look like for you? That's my question. You see, a story like Mephibosheth's should make you thankful for the family that you have. but it should also make you want to share the family that you have. Both the earthly one and the spiritual one. I once had a conversation with a family 
who said that every evening when they had dinner, they purposely left one seat empty at the table, and that seat was for Jesus, to remind the family that Jesus was present with them. And on one hand, I thought that was very, very sweet. On the other hand, I thought it was kind of weird. It reminded me of when my little brother had an imaginary friend, and it was like, oh, you can't sit there. Why? You'll crush the Lord. Here's what I think. I don't think Jesus would necessarily want you to leave an empty seat for him. I think he wants you to fill an empty seat that's at your table with somebody who doesn't know you and who probably doesn't know him. That's what he wants you to do. That's the best way to honor his presence. So here's the question I want you wrestling with as you go home later today. I want you, as a family, to wrestle with this question. Who do we know that would be blessed by being welcomed at our table? Who is new to our neighborhood? Who is struggling at work? Who's a new face at church? And I'm not sure you know, who, who they're connected to here. They're certainly not connected to me here. That I could, I could welcome into our home, into our safe place, our family place, and they would be blessed by being welcomed into our table. Who could that be? That's the question I want you wrestling with. Who could be blessed by an invitation to our table? Who is a stranger to us, for all intents and purposes, that we could treat like family for the sake of them becoming our friends and potentially sharing in the hope and the peace that we have? That's biblical hospitality. We have a mission here at St. Mark. It's a mission we've had for 70 years, but we're talking about it in a new way. And the new way we've been talking about it is this. We exist to introduce Houston families to the life-changing love of Jesus. We exist to introduce Houston families to the life-changing love of Jesus. And as we do that, we value three things. We want people to make friends. We want them to meet the person of Jesus. And we want them to make a difference. You can't do any of that introduce Houston families to Jesus. We can't, we can't be a church that's known for making friends and introducing people to our Lord and, and making a difference with our lives without biblical hospitality, without opening up our own homes, opening up our own lives. There's lots of ways in which you can do this. Find the stranger on your street, find the new person at work, open up your home, invite them to your table, or just invite someone from the church here into your home. Some of you have big, beautiful homes. Invite people to them. There are lots of people here who have little kids that are running around like crazy all the time. You've got a big backyard and a beautiful pool. Have them over to swim. Lead a Bible study here. Gather around a table in this place. Join that team that helps make Sunday morning happen. You know what happens when you join a Sunday morning team here? You are helping us welcome the stranger and treat them like family, to show hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is philozenia, love of strangers. You're helping us love strangers. It's something as simple as on a Sunday morning when we meet and greet and we pass the peace, like leave your pew and find somebody you don't know and like shake their hand and share your name and ask them their name. Get to know them just a little bit. And then the following Sunday when you come in, you can really weird them out, just sit right next to them. And then at the quietest moment of the service, lean over and say, you're my new best friend. It's very simple. 
As a church and as individuals, I want our neighbors to talk about us behind our backs. It's not a matter of if they're talking about you behind your back, but what they're saying. And and here's what I want them to say. I want them to say, they made a space for me. They invited me. They talked about things that were important to them with me. I got to know them. I got to eat with them. I think I might be friends with them. That's what God and Jesus Christ has done for you, Mephibosheth. He made a space. And now you can do that for others. If you want to be a next-level neighbor, it begins with biblical hospitality. Treat strangers like family so that by the power of God, they might become friends. Amen.